I think it's really important, and back to where Sarah's marketing background or both our marketing backgrounds come into play, is knowing who your audience is. And so mm. figuring out what's important to that, that state. And so in the end of the day, any state that passes any medical or adult use laws for cannabis, what's our number one goal is to make the program successful, right? Which is to give, especially in a medical state, is to give patients access to medicine. And so they're looking for a pack, a button-up group to be like, hey, pick us. This is all the ingredients. I already have this business planned out. I know exactly who I'm going to hire. And I know exactly where I'm going to be. Here's the money that's going to fund it. All the ingredients Sarah had mentioned, I'm basically prepared. Pick me because if you pick me, I can open like this. And so that is essentially, especially with a lot of the medical markets, what the state is looking for. And then the little nuances for each state is how we have to study them, each market and what's important to them, what do they important to then plug those into the application as well. You're listening to To Be Blunt, the podcast for cannabis marketers where your host Shada Taravi and her guests are trailblazing the path to marketing, educating, and professionalizing cannabis. Light one up and listen up. Here's your host, Shada Taravi. Hello, and welcome back to the To Be Blunt podcast. I'm your host, Shada Tarabi, cannabis business owner and brand marketer. And we're kicking off this episode by officially welcoming the To Be Blunt podcast to Substack. You can visit us at tobebluntpod.substack.com. Now, if you're unfamiliar with Substack, it's primarily a writing platform, which at its root provides publishing, payment analytics, and design infrastructure to support subscription newsletters, aka receiving content from me directly in your inbox box, which is exactly what motivated me to move on over. For one, I wanted an easier way for you to subscribe and stay in touch with me. So if you visit the link, which I'll also include in the show notes below, then you will be prompted to enter your email in as a free subscriber, which will enable you to access not only my podcast archives and new episodes moving forward, which by the way, podcasts released every Monday will always continue to be free, but you'll also get a preview of some of my bigger thoughts written down in long form content. I really just see this also as a way to build a list, to build a community. Obviously, we're on the podcast, we're on different podcasting platforms, Spotify, Apple, we're all over social media, on YouTube, on Instagram. Those are all really disjointed ways of communicating with me. And for better or worse, if any of those platforms go away, how will we stay in touch? And so I want to really use Substack as that centralized point of communication, of contact, of content. And so I hope that you will join me over on Substack to one, be a part of the ecosystem, but two, just to get, you know, kind of first direct contact with the content that I'm creating that hopefully you know and love because you're tuning into this podcast and you're listening to these episodes. I want to also highlight that there are different options, right? So there's monthly, yearly, the founding subscriber. It's pretty much the price of a cup of coffee, although I don't drink coffee, but I do love matcha. So it'd be like you buying me a cup of matcha monthly. The monthly subscription is literally $5 a month. So I just really want to encourage you, if you get any value from the things that I share You know, being a content creator is awesome. I love doing this because I love sharing my thoughts. I love creating content, really. I love the process of creating things, whether it's recording, it's video, it's written. And 
I think there's also a really big disconnect with how creators get compensated. One, we work with brands. So sometimes brands sponsor us, do collaborative content. Sometimes brands might sponsor the podcast, which by the way, I'm just going to put that little you know note out there. I would love to explore podcast sponsorships in the future. If that's you or your brand would love to talk, but like you as an individual, how do you support? And so I think just offering a medium like Substack to my audience will enable you to be able to help support the show monetarily, which will ultimately help me continue to do what I'm doing. And, you know, cause this stuff isn't free. It costs me money to record, to edit, to my time, of course, to put all this together, which I love to do. So just, if you're feeling compelled, if you're feeling called, just wanted to point out that that is an option on Substack. It will unlock some other features. Again, maybe some like direct communication with me back and forth. And certainly appreciate just everybody just tuning in, subscribing in general, free subscribers. Thank you so much. You are helping to grow my audience. And that is in and of itself amazing. So I also wanted to mention, I don't know how many of you know this detail, but back in the day, kind of what prompted me to get back into writing, especially on Substack, is when I first started creating content, specifically all the way back in high school, my weapon of choice was blogging. I've always been attracted to the power of a written word. That's ultimately what led me to getting a job at WP Engine, or also known as WordPress Engine, which WordPress is the number one blogging platform in the world, and that's really where I got my start. I had a music blog on WordPress to document my experiences living in the live music capital. That is my hometown of Austin, Texas. And it was a really beautiful way for me to express myself. And I would say that I wasn't doing anything with a ton of intention. It was more just, you know, me word vomiting on paper, or in this case, on my keyboard, onto my screen. But I'm really feeling renewed looking at Substack as an extension of that same passion that I had early on and being able to leverage it now for my topics relating to cannabis and taking cannabis packaged goods specifically to market. So of course, over time, blogging became one of many avenues that I would use to create content, but eventually it kind of, you know, fizzled out as other mediums like video and short form captions on Instagram took precedent in my world. Like I said, though, clearly the tug of writing has always been there, which is why I'm so, so excited to share that in addition to releasing podcast episodes on Substack, I will also be sharing more of my writing and I have two articles up right now for you to read. The first one I wrote was titled The Future of Hemp Drive Cannabis, specifically more speaking on the depth of my observations about the marijuana or regulated adult use cannabis industry merging with the hemp derived industry or at least access to our laws so that they can leverage hemp cannabinoids to launch products nationwide without the infrastructure of a multi-state operation. I've been seeing a lot of this happening in the beverage space, specifically if you listen to last week's episode on Minneapolis, you'll know a little bit about what I'm talking about, but hopefully this article helps, you know, kind of highlight a little bit more specifically and directly what is unfolding in our industry. And it's a really good FYI for you guys to pay attention to. The next one I wrote was on the topic of yes or no for the term marijuana, a historical and cultural approach to using the term. Now, I think there's a lot of debate over why we should or shouldn't use that term moving forward as an industry. And maybe my perspective is influenced because I operate in hemp, but I feel as long as it is a legal definition, especially when outlining the hemp versus medical marijuana or adult use marijuana programs, then it has merit at the table when communicating, especially to a lay person or a consumer. I'll leave it at that. I really encourage you, if you want to read more, you can visit tobebluntpod.substack.com and subscribe so you won't miss new podcast episodes or future posts. 
And those are just some of the ideas of topics that I'm really looking forward to expanding upon. And I'm really happy to have found Substack. I've seen a few other cannabis content creators launching over there. So I wanted to test drive it myself. And so far it's been great. Final note on this subject, I really do enjoy being able to speak bluntly and will remind you all that this is just one opinion. And I always welcome debate about anything that I share, whether it be a podcast topic, social media post, or written article. I hope you know that I try to operate as a sponge in every situation and scenario. And that's what I ask of you too. Maybe you came to the table with one perspective or one way of thinking about it. Hopefully these conversations, these articles, these dialogues are really just jumping off points for more conversation. And so I hope you'll join me over on Substack and be on the lookout for more news and updates in your inbox. If you have ideas for specific topics, articles, or lists too, by the way, I'm all ears as I build out what kind of newsletter topics are most relevant to share to help you really think about the future of cannabis packaged goods going to market. Okay, now getting into today's guests and episode, this was a fascinating one because part of the process to operate in the regulated marijuana market, whether it be medical or adult use, starts with an application, an application for pursuing a license with a state's cannabis program. And we're joined today by two powerhouse ladies who are helping brands navigate that journey one application at a time. Based in Phoenix, Arizona, the Cannabis Business Advisor, also known as CB Advisors, is a multifaceted consulting firm providing strategic business guidance for cannabis license applicants and current license holders throughout all stages of growth to companies across the United States and Canada. CB Advisors is led by CEO and founder Sarah Gullickson and President Maxime Cott, and the consulting team brings more than 20 years of combined industry experience. The company offers a comprehensive suite of services, including application and licensing preparation, operational analysis, merger and acquisition support, policy and procedures, exit strategy guidance, and business development planning. For today's episode, we focus a lot on the application process. Texas just closed out their round of medical marijuana license applications at the end of April, and of course, I was curious to learn how similar or different these applications are state to state. Fortunately for us, Sarah and Maxime fill us in on all the details, and I think this is going to be a great informative episode. Whether you're pursuing an application or not, this will point you in the right direction while also highlighting the varying processes that take place state by state to operate licensed and legally in the industry. I can't wait for you to hear this episode, so without further ado, please join me by lighting one up, and let's welcome Sarah and Maxime to the show. Thanks for having us, first of all. We're super excited to chat. So my name is Sarah Gullickson. I'm the CEO of Cannabis Business Advisors. The Cannabis Business Advisors is actually my second consulting company in the industry. I started in the industry 13, 14 years ago now. And I basically started when Arizona was legalizing cannabis. I grew up in a naturopathic household. So it was a natural progression for me as somebody that was in marketing to start marketing for something that in my brain wasn't like the devil lettuce or whatever people call it. It was something that could help people feel better. And so I got involved and basically went state to state to state. I helped entrepreneurs put together their requests for proposal, requests for application. And then I helped the legislators craft a lot of the rules and the regulations back in the day because nobody really knew what was going on. Did that for a long time. Also got involved in securing licenses for myself I think my first license was awarded back in like 2017 or right around there. Now today, I think I hold seven or eight licenses across the U.S. And then in 2018, a company came and knocked on my door and said, hey, you want to sell your business? And I had been entertaining offers in, in potentially partnering or whatever that looked like. And I decided at the time I was actually pregnant, which nobody knew, 
And I decided, hey, this would be a good opportunity. So we transitioned my first company, which was dispensary permits, um, over to a public company. I became the CEO of that company and headed up their expansion plans for a bit. And then after I had my son, I didn't really know what that looked like to be a CEO of a company and publicly traded cannabis company that's moving super fast and also wanting to be at home and enjoy my first child. So I ended up stepping down. At the time, Maxime and I had been working together for five years, I would say. And she, at that point, was the director of licensing and she handled all of our RFP, RFA work. And I had a non-compete for a bit. So she was over at item nine. And when my non-compete was over, we decided to get together and launch something together as business partners. And that was in March of 2020. So it was like right before the pandemic. But yeah, we've been pounding the paper pavement ever since. I wouldn't say COVID was like, a negative thing for us in the sense that we got to do everything over Zoom. States were still legalizing. And so now we handle going for licenses for our network of partners or investors, as well as clients, and then also helping them on the operational side of things open their actual facilities. So that's the long and the short. (laughs) No, that was perfect. Super interesting to obviously understand. Again, I think the licensing process is... Something that if you're in the industry, you're anticipating because you know that you need to play that way. But if you're outside of the industry looking in, you don't quite realize what a licensing process entails. And so I'm sure your business is very valuable for multiple reasons. And Maxime, if you'd like to kick off with your background and how you got connected to Sarah. Yeah, sure. And I always like her to start because it's so much easier to introduce myself after this because I don't have the history. My name is Maxine Cott, and I am the Director of Licensing for our now business, the Cannabis Business Advisors. Prior to that, I was, you know, the Director of Licensing for Sarah's previous company, Dispensary Permit, as well. I started as a marketing coordinator. So both Sarah and I started from the bottom up. I, I graduated with a marketing I'm laughing because very early on, Sarah realized, you know, marketing might not be your thing. But what I was really good at was retaining information and being able to regurgitate that information in a way that people could understand. So she kind of coached me into becoming more of a consultant. And that kind of took my career off into where I am today. I like to always say that I didn't pick cannabis, cannabis picked me. But now there's a mutual love for sure. I, I can't imagine doing anything else. And I knew that cannabis was a passion of mine within this specific, you know, regulatory realm of licensing. When I was in my early 20s and it was a Saturday and there were all the pool parties going on in Arizona and I wanted to go into the office to finish a project versus going to all the pool parties. So that's when I knew, you know, that was uh, this cannabis was, you know, the right career path for me. And so... Yeah, that that's basically, you know, how we got, how I got started and the rest is history. No, that's amazing. I'm very excited to dive in with you ladies today because as I was kind of sharing before we started hitting record to see bring the listeners up to speed, I think the whole idea of operating in the industry is at least from like a consumer perspective, there's a lot of to be blunt, ignorance, right? It's like, we, we just want legalization. We think that you flip a switch and legalization means the same thing in every state. And I know now being an operator for five years in Texas, that's obviously the complete opposite. Every state has different requirements for their licensing structure. They're obviously issuing different license types out. And so 
to maybe back up before we get into some of the licensing stuff, I would love to understand like what are the services your business offers? What are things like if someone's listening and they're obviously maybe wanting to be a client or get more information, like what would people come to you for? Because to me, licensing makes sense, but there's obviously other things that might be tangential or part of that process that you offer. And so I just want to get like a good pulse of what do people come to you for? Yeah. So obviously the licensing aspect is huge and that's really what Maxine handles. And so it's, I want to get a cannabis business license in XYZ state, or maybe you don't even know the state you want to be in and then what specific type of license. So that is like a more cut and dry service. Now the other flyers, which because of my creativity and my marketing background and my out of the box way of life, let's say, I really like to handle the different cases in the sense of, I have a million dollars, where do I put it in the industry? I have $20 million, where do I put it in the industry? I have a cannabis license, I don't want to operate it, how do I do that? I have a product I want to launch, what does that look like? So on my side of the business, it's more of like a case-by-case situation, get a hold of us. If you have an idea, I can shape it up into potentially like a full-blown business for you or tell you it's a really bad idea and put your money somewhere else. So we're very boutique We like to keep our client list small so that we can offer that kind of service where it's very customized and it isn't as cookie cutter. And, but the like actual licensing work is a lot easier to define because of the way that the legislation is laid out, because of the way the applications are laid out. It's like, you're getting this. And then again, on the creative side of the business, we'll do anything from hourly consulting to retainer-based consulting to brand identity, focus groups, you name it. We can help you break into the cannabis industry. And so y'all reflect that you are obviously national, potentially even international. What states are you operating in and are there states that you're not operating in and why would you not be operating in that state considering that I think all 50 at least to some extent have some sort of program maybe like supplement that question a little bit too. Are you explicitly playing in the marijuana space or are you also... Because I guess as I say it out loud, hemp is pretty easy to navigate in terms of getting a license. They're not as financially of an investment. So I don't know if people have come to you from the hemp space and they're trying to help you secure or they're seeking for you to help them secure hemp licenses or if you're explicitly playing in like adult use or medical marijuana. And so under, does that make sense? Like the states are in the arenas in the industry that you're specializing in. Yeah. Bethany, do you want to take that one as far as what we just closed out and then I can get the idea of what else is to come yeah so i think it's interesting because back in you know when when i first started in the industry there were a lot of new new groups that wanted to get into the industry and there were you know it was like the green rush all the states were legalizing medical marijuana and then it's transitioned into adult use now right and so it's 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 become almost easier to help groups with licensing because it's it's not a new concept anymore for for most groups and a lot of the Groups that actually make baptists are referral based are our operators. And so, you know, we don't have to re-educate them on the program. It's just helping them with an expansion into markets they may be interested in pursuing. So I've seen that transition happen for sure. It's, I mean, people are a little bit more educated now in the sense where they know licensing isn't that easy to obtain. And so you'll, you'll get more of the more seasoned or existing operators or single state operators that want to be multi-state operators come into play. And so the states that we focus on are broken up into, I like to call them like open markets, 
checklist licensing. And so those are markets like when uh, before Oklahoma had a moratorium, right? So Oklahoma, Colorado, California, New Mexico as one of the newer adult use markets that are open state, meaning there isn't a limitation to the licenses. And so those are the markets that will always participate in if the right current comes along or need those services. But I wouldn't necessarily think we are hyper targeting those markets, right? Because those are open-end markets. There's always going to be an opportunity in those markets where where we focus our marketing efforts on based on timeline are the limited states, the limited markets. So basically those are the markets that have, or merit-based is what I call them. It's markets where they're only giving out so many licenses, just like Texas. So we were fortunate enough to be able to participate in their most recent Texas programs, where we know they're only giving out a handful of licenses and the, the licensing process, there's an open date and there's a due date, right? There's a deadline. So our window of opportunity to participate in that market is, you know, whenever the state is fight. And so those are the markets that we have to retarget. So we recently worked in Florida, Texas. Those are the two states that just closed April 28th. So last week. And I would say, you know, any of the open markets, like I mentioned, New Mexico, New Jersey, New York are some of the more recent markets that are, you know, booming in, in the media and there's a, has garnered a lot of interest. The upcoming markets, like the Southern market, Alabama, Delaware, Kentucky, now just recently legalized medical. So a lot of the more red state slash, you know, Southern states are starting to come online. So those are markets that were you know, definitely hurting Missouri, Maryland, if we're talking about the East Coast. Did you want to add anything, Sarah, or no? No, like basically when the licensing phase finishes, there's certain clients that maybe like our business ideals are the same. And so then we'll continue working there. So like in Florida, I guarantee when our client wins the license, I'll end up holding their hand through grand opening. Missouri, I have a really great vertical group that anytime they need me, they call me. And in essence, we'll be working in 20, 30 states at a time. It's just the heavy lifting is going to those merit-based 500, 1,000 page applications that Axiom and her team are submitting. So when it comes to, to focus, I guess, on the licensing component of it, it's really interesting. I appreciate the way that you're breaking it down because I think, again, agnostically, I can look at it. And for sure, I've been tracking and paying attention some states like my own, like Florida, like you mentioned, they're different requirements for those licenses. And then some states certainly are a little bit more open, like you mentioned Oklahoma before they put that change in making you actually have to be an Oklahoma resident to actually qualify for a license. And so I guess I want to understand a little bit more because I'm really curious about how you like track and how did it start? So I'm assuming Arizona was the first state because you live in Arizona. And so just paying attention. And I didn't realize Arizona had medical marijuana for as long as this did going back to like similar timing as California. So obviously it gives your state a little bit more of a runway to understand your tracking over the years. There's maybe this many licenses. Now there's this many licenses. It's a little bit more of a progression to watch because it's like close to your home. But now as you're getting into so many of these other states, so many nuances to these states. I mean, even being in Texas, I have a hard time keeping track of what's going on with our licensing program when it comes to the T-Cut program. And so I just want to know how you navigate it. What was that progression like 
Was it Arizona and then California? Because there's maybe some similarities there. Was it Arizona and then some random state? Because a client came to you and said, hey, we want to go into this state. What do you know about this state? And how do you make yourself the expert to understand? I think, yes, there's some understanding reading a a life paperwork or even just any type of legal agreement. Personally, that's not my strong suit, although I have read a lot of legal agreements just operating in the industry. But there's some nuances to it. There's obviously a lot of pages. There's a lot of things to fill out. There's different requirements. So how do you pull all that stuff together and ultimately move forward with submitting an application? Yeah. So if I start from the beginning when I got involved, Arizona legalized and then I worked in Arizona. For the first, I would say, two, three years of my career, I still had my marketing agency and I still serviced spa salons and health facilities, plastic surgeons, dentists, and I helped them with their marketing campaigns. Back then, social media was new. And so I filled most of my time with that in the beginning because our work was super seasonal. So it's not like I could make my whole living in cannabis. And then after, so it was New Jersey, then it was Arizona. And then after that, there was like a lull and then Illinois that they were going. And I think there was like DC in the mix in that time too. But Illinois was the first time that my career became full-time that business people that actually had assets wanted to participate in the game. And it was remarkable because there were so many people vying for the opportunity that I ended up setting up an office there. I ended up living there a week or two out of the month. I ended up seeing some weeks I'd see 40 clients a day. And so I had to tighten up my presentation to be like, this is what the industry is. This is what the industry isn't. If you want in, call me and give me my and back then it was broke. I didn't, we didn't, the industry wasn't what it was. And so it was like some weeks I'd be like, okay, hopefully I really get a small retainer client or sign somebody so that I can buy my plane ticket home. So it was really like a wild journey. And then after that, the state started popping like popcorn. And then it was like, at one point, maybe a year after that, we were getting into, okay, two states at once. And then obviously now it's like at any given moment we're in, like we were just doing Illinois. Uh, Florida and Texas, literally all at once. So that is the first time I think in Maxime and I's history of working together that there were like three states submitting literally within 10 days of each other. So that's the progression of it. And as far as like how we track it, we have a research assistant. We have our tools that we use to not only track what's coming down the pipeline by showing my wall right now because I'm so visual. I literally have writing. I have a calendar. I have five post-it notes over here and it breaks down what our states are that we're watching to see if they're going to transition into some sort of like program where we could collect revenue. And realistically, like that used to be like maybe like a once every three or four months activity. And now we're literally as a team meeting, I would say it's almost on a monthly basis. In addition to like our weekly state update that comes out every single week to say, this is what's going on. That's what's going on. Yeah, no, I can imagine it's something that there's maybe some similarities to just because I think (laughs) I wish the states would learn from each other. And so in some capacities, I feel like they're like, oh, yeah, that state did that thing in their licensing. So I'm just going to copy and paste it over here. But then there's some components where it's completely like off the field and you're just like, where the hell did they get that line item that that is a requirement now? So maybe, Maxime, you can clarify and answer for me or highlight for me. What are some of the most crazy things that you've seen on some of these licensing applications in terms of requirements? So I'll supplement that. 
as y'all know, my listeners may or may not know, Texas being my date, and I didn't realize licenses had just closed in, in the end of April. Clearly, that shows how much I'm paying attention to that process. But I'm very removed from medical marijuana in the state of Texas because I operate in hemp. And I think part of it is though the application was like 20 something thousand dollars non-refined, not, you know, the line of a potential client that you were sharing. So someone who's got a couple 20 million laying around, where do I put it? I'm like, yeah, uh-huh. You can put it in my pocket over here. I'd love to go for a license. But just like knowing that there's some better, I feel like things on applications and some that are not so favorable. I'm just curious what your observations have been. What are some of the things that stand out to you of maybe certain programs or certain requirements that you're like, oh, that's wonderful. I love that state is asking or requiring that compared to maybe another state where it's helpful for the overall program. Yeah, sure. Uh, what you said earlier was true in regards to, I definitely growing up in the industry and, you know, when I first joined the industry, I, that's all I did was study legislation. And as more states started to legalize, you definitely see a trend of states mimicking each other's states, which is great. Like they learn from each other's, you know, states what and figure out, and the legislators will figure out what works for that's their, their people. Right. And so what I did notice is terminology. So when I, when I'm like looking at, for example, North Dakota, they definitely took items from Delaware and Delaware is one of an older medical market. So I would see trends like that. Pennsylvania, I think was the first state that required a Sally port and enclosed Sally ports, which I like, meaning you have to build like a garage, the vehicle drives in. That's where you do your loading and unloading to avoid, you know, diversion or to avoid burglary or anything like that. And I have seen some other states implement that as a mandatory requirement. Not a lot of them have, but I have seen some of them do that. And it's not become like a best practice, obviously. If, if you're, you want to, you know, a, a little extra security if you're not in a strip mall or, and your facility allows for it. So things like that, some of it, some of the crazier requirements I've seen, like you yeah, mentioned Texas, the first round, I think it, their application fee was, or the application fee was like a quarter million or something like that. And so that knocked a lot of people out. In Florida, there were most recent application that were participated in their application fee was a non-refundable of $140,000. So if you don't get this application, that fees, you know, non-refundable. In Hawaii, they required a proof of funds. So that's an element of the, in some applications, they'll ask you to show how you're going to fund your operations. And in Hawaii, they wanted you, the proof of funds had to be a bank statement under that applicant, under the entity's name, the new business's name, the applicant's name. And it had, the funds had to be in there for at least, I think, four to six months prior to the application submission. So that was obviously logistically, you wouldn't be able to be a last minute applicant, right? So that's one of a crazy requirement. The more recent, not crazy, but you know, one that stuck out with Alabama's residency requirement. I think you were required to be there for like 14 or double digit years. I know that if I remember correctly. So those are some of the, you know, long, not wonky, but little nuance, nuances you'll see some of the states work into their legislation, but it, you know, it all, it all caters to their specific market. You know, there's always a reason why they do, not always, but for the most part, there's a reason why, you know, those are in there. Yeah. Then people obviously and wonder, like looking from the outside in, oh, my state's legalizing or, oh, that state 
that I'm curious in is legalizing. Let me go ahead and apply. And I think financial barriers are a huge reality for better or worse, which certainly excludes a lot of people. I think using Oklahoma as the example of Wild West, anybody could get a license. And obviously that impacted their industry, not just because the state geography is very heavily disproportionate to the city, to the rural areas, but you're also seeing how that doesn't actually allow the brands to have a fair chance because there's too many operators in the marketplace. And so it's like you want some limited nature to the licenses. You don't want it to be a free-for-all, but you also want to make it accessible. And I remember hearing, maybe this was like two years ago, and so I'm curious if Florida's laws have changed. But I remember Florida early on for their medical licenses, you had to have owned a nursery, like a plant nursery for yeah, 13, 15 years or something in your family lineage to even qualify for the license. And so it obviously puts the question, well, who were these applications really accessible to? And of course, there's some states where they're making it more accessible, but it shows like the broad swath of the reality of the industry, which again, I think from a consumer perspective, it's, yeah, everybody should just have legal weed. And now my question back to those people is, well, what does legalization mean to you? Do you actually understand what legalization is? Because legalization can mean different things in Alabama than it does in California, clearly. And, and that licensing being that component of navigating that structure to actually enter the marketplace is just par for So I would love to turn it to you, Sarah. And going off of what you were saying about some of the typical types of clients that come to you and obviously understanding some of the markets that you highlighted being really important, specifically Illinois, I feel like I would be remiss to address, just based on what we were talking about previously as well, some of the barriers to entry from a financial standpoint. I know that Illinois is very heavy with MSO operators, which I do think get a bad reputation And I'm not necessarily anti-MSO. It's just more, how do you, as a small business owner myself, like how do I see an opportunity to operate in the industry? And so I just want to understand a little bit of these, obviously not specifics if you can't share and create space for discretion, but I would love to understand, are these people who are currently in the industry that you're working with majority or is it people from other industries, perhaps maybe tobacco or pharmaceuticals or alcohol that are like, hey, I have money. And I want to put it into cannabis and just trying to get a feel for who's entering the market. Who are you working with? What are interests? Are they active? Not active, maybe. Are they advocates? Are they like really active in the industry? Or are they just looking for a place really to put their and see it grow in the industry? I think it's changed a lot, right? So a lot, like when we first got into the industry, it was like the old guards, right? And you hear a lot of the old guards, like really complaining about the barrier to entry to the different programming. And I always like to address this because... People complain all the time. Opening a business is expensive. Opening a business in a market that's brand new, that nobody has a roadmap to, is very expensive. Especially if you're in like cultivation and you're buying lights and building out a warehouse. And so I always have a hard time being self-made. Nobody funded me. I pound the pavement. I started an ancillary business quite briefly because I couldn't afford to do a dispensary. So I think when you're talking about like your path forward in the industry and the barrier to entry. There are so many opportunities for low barrier to entry, but the ever like looks at the plant touching licenses is the end all be all. As somebody that owns both, I will tell you that the plant touching businesses are so much harder. And so it just really depends on what segment of the industry we're placing people in. We've helped small people start ancillary businesses. 
And that's like sweat equity and like just getting your name out there and marketing to the proper community, which in this case is the cannabis community and creating a segment in your business that really understands that. I always tell people like the industry needs talent. It needs smart people. There's not a lot of super smart, sophisticated people in the industry. And that's just the reality of it. But the industry also needs like the MSO quality operators that have millions, if not billions backing. So I would say that a segment of our company is the local entrepreneurs or the local movers and shakers that have capital that want to get involved in something different for themselves, for their family legacy. And and that's a large portion of like our application work. And then we have a lot of segment in there that's MSOs or multi-state operators or one-off operators that want to expand. And then we'll put down a full rollout for them to say, okay, here's your core competencies. Here's your niche. Here's the markets you should go into. And then just by like word of mouth in the industry. And I think when I first started getting my own licenses that I was like, oh, geez, now what am I going to do with them, right? That has introduced me to a much larger network of people that are more like the family offices, the investors, real estate investors. And so that profile is also very different in the sense that some people just want to pick up the real estate. They don't want to be involved in the operations. And then some of the people are going to be operators that want us to serve up our local people to them so that they can make a marriage. So I don't think we have one persona. I think the commonality of who we choose to be our clients, just because we're boutique and we don't to work with people we don't want to, or are forward thinking entrepreneurs that can find a will and a way to be flexible in an ever-changing market that have the capital to back them or the wherewithal to go out and find the capital. And I think that's like a common thread. My old like canned saying was like, I knew when somebody came to me, especially if it was like through a referral, it was like more of an eccentric individual that was bored in what they were doing because they'd already made a bunch of money and they wanted to like try something new. To challenge themselves. And I think that's still relatively true. And I just think that those are like more of the personalities that gravitate toward our firm because we're not really like a firm that, okay, we have 8 million staff and our nut we have to crack every month is $10 million. So we have to like work with all these people that like probably won't even win. So we like to work with winners. Hey, To Be Blunt fam, it's Shada here, and I want to give a shout out to my own brand of premium cannabis products, Restart CBD. As a daily user myself, I can personally attest to the effectiveness of our cannabis tinctures, topicals, edibles, and specifically our hemp-derived Delta 9 THC offerings. Whether I'm dealing with stress, body aches, or just need a boost in focus, Restart has a product and cannabinoid that can make me feel better. And our customers have been loving Restart too. Here are some actual quotes from our fans. Juice said, customer service alone deserves a five star. Always super generous when we come here. Also very professional and knowledgeable. Why, thank you very much. We take those five stars and we raise you a high five. And then Laura said, this is the absolute best dispensary I've ever been to. It's run by three sisters who are all equally knowledgeable about every product they sell. Ah, Laura, thank you for seeing us. We really are out here acting like a sponge, just trying to soak up all the information. 
So if you're looking for quality cannabis products from CBD to Delta 8, and yes, even Delta 9, we got you. Head to restartcbd.com. By the way, we ship nationwide. All our products are federally legal and hemp derived. So use the code 2BTOBE at checkout to get $5 off your first order on me. Our team is dedicated to providing you with the best cannabis products on the market, and we're proud to be sponsors of To Be Blunt. Thanks for supporting my brand and my podcast, and let's all restart our day with Restart CBD. Yes, I can understand that, but I really do appreciate you highlighting a couple of things. One, obviously the ancillary nature to supporting the industry, which cannot discredit And the perspective has happened over the years, I think, of just being an operator myself and paying attention to what's happening nationally. And again, that tug of war of like, people don't really care for MSOs. But at the same time, to your point and observation, they usually have the infrastructure and the finances to come and help bring a lot of good to the industry. And so it's like, we need both to exist. And I do think people discredit these ancillary licenses a lot of times because Everybody wants to touch the plant. And I've for sure said on the podcast, I'll say it again. If I could do it over again as a hemp retailer, I'm not necessarily aspiring or like looking towards a a recreational license in Texas because I'm like, you know what? I don't really want to touch the plant. The touching the plant has a lot of oversight that it's kind of like, I've been there, done that. I, if you want to do that and you know, you want to make a partnership with me and marketing, sign me up. But like me going in and being like, yes, I would like to throw myself against the sword. I'm like, I just, I know better than that. And I don't want to do that. So to everybody listening, who's like, that's me, I want to do that. That's great for you. But I also do love shining a light again on all the different, like, obviously we're marketers here on this call. Yes, y'all have some personal licenses that you own independently, of course. And I think that's a great thing to just highlight is there's different ways to operate in the industry, to support the industry, talking about other offerings, legal, accounting, even marketing in general, social media management. Like there's other ways to support the industry that don't require you to actually get a license. But I want to go off of the point you just ended with on you want to work with winners. Share some stats, some updates. I mean, again, I know every state has different allotments for how many licenses they issue out, but what does that look like in terms of like you're working with clients? Let's say you have 10 clients, are all 10 clients, and this could be across the board in different states, are all 10 clients getting licenses? Is it really that competitive? Filling out a license application is one thing. What maybe is some of the special sauce that maybe makes a license stand out? Is it certain deliverables that the client can prove to the state? So for example, again, using Texas, because that's the one I know the most, I know our medical license application had a lot of requirements around infrastructure. It required some money being liquidated. And if you don't have that, obviously it deselects you. But let's say you've got two people who have all those ducks in a row and the state is going to only award one license. How personal is it? Do you actually get to talk to these states during the license process? Again, knowing some states are lottery states, so I know it's not explicit. I'm saying a lot of things, but hopefully there's some kind of like ahas that you can share of was the reality like 10 people apply and it's 50% or it's a third. It varies obviously state to state. So I'm just curious to get some understanding, especially knowing that Texas 
as a lot of people who are my peers who think they're going to get a license. And I have some speculation around what Texas is going to do, obviously not knowing how they're going to issue these licenses, but a lot of people think they're the shit and they're going to get it. And like, I don't know about that. And so I'm just curious from y'all's perspective, making a compelling application, both winning and maybe why people are losing applications in their state. Yeah. So it's interesting because I got involved 14 years ago or 13 or whatever it is now. And the license for merit-based limited license states like Texas, like Florida, the ingredients are literally the same. They're the same. You need some sort of industry experience, whether that's through you or a consultant that you hire. You need killer real estate. You need the finances to open and the financial wherewithal to expand if that's what the state requires. You need the team building. In the sense, you need the team to execute on like compliance, you know, growing and all the things, right? And then you need community support. Those ingredients I identified probably 12 years ago. And they're the same ingredients that when Maxine gets on the phone with somebody, when she's interviewing them to work with us, because that's really how we roll. Those are the things she's asking them. And those are the things she's identifying. Because when we talk about like only wanting to work with winners, I love that to give you like a stat or whatever. And I'm sure Maxine can share like some specifics of our like last couple of states that we worked in and what that looked like. But since the makeup of every state so different, we don't have a percentage that we can share. I will say in, I think every single state we've worked in, we've been successful in some capacity, whether that was securing one client a license or five clients a license. And so when we're talking about working with winners, those are like the core values their team needs to bring to the table. Or if they don't have them, they have to be like fast, creative, fluid individuals that will be like going out there to get it, right? So ultimately, it's the can-do attitude where I'm like, hey, you have to go get this. And then the client that says, it's so stupid to secure real estate before we even know that we're getting a license. We're like, don't do it then. Then you're going to like, do you want to be a loser? So it's it's really different. But like I said, in the merit base, those are the ingredients you absolutely need. And then now when we're getting into lottery base, it's dumb luck. So we want to work with somebody that has buying power to make an influence, whatever that looks like in the sense, put enough applications in that you'll be successful. And there's obviously strategy that goes along with the lottery processes. And then in a unlimited state, where there's multiple licenses being awarded, like New Jersey, like Team and her team did an awesome job saying, hey, go here because they're only giving one or two in your local municipality or jurisdiction. Or go to your backyard where you have other businesses that are successful that are paying tax dollars and so that naturally the government is going to want to work with you. A good story, I think, Maxime, is when you went and spoke at Benton Harbor. Yeah, that was really interesting. So we were in Benton Harbor and we had prepared a presentation to present. I think there were only four licenses up for grabs and we, you know, one of the applicants that they were considering. And we had gotten there, you know, on time and we walked in while our competitor was presenting and they had sketches of security systems and, and cameras and we're like, Oh no, our presentation was completely not that. It wasn't technical. It was more about what we were going to bring to the community, how many jobs we were going to create, you know, what kind of tax dollars are they expected to see and all of that. And so we're sitting there like sweating. And then towards the end of the competitor's presentation, it was an open Q and A for the, the local municipality commissioners to ask questions. 
And when they opened up for Q&A, the questions they started asking were, well, how many jobs are you going to create? How many tax sales can we expect to see? In my ward, what are you, how many you know, people are you going to hire? In that person's ward, you know? And so it was more about catering to the community. And so we were like, oh, phew. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it was also about the local hometown hero and how yeah. much have you donated to our community? So my brain works strategically like that or marketing like that, whatever you want to call it, where I'm like, they don't care about all that stuff. They want to know that you're a local person that's going to open a local business and continue to build infrastructure of an underserved community. And so it was like this light bulb moment where we were kind of sweating, but I'm like, no, nah, I think this is going to work in our favor in the sense that they wanted, they didn't want out-of-state people. They wanted a local person to execute the job. Is that traditional to present your application no. in persons? Okay. No. no. Yeah. Just Some states will do like a, but I would say one out of 10. If yeah. We were like, yeah. Yeah. You, you don't of, get a line in because then it's like, collision and are you passing white envelopes and like all that so typically like winking at people judging you or listening to your presentation they're like oh they look really friendly i'll award it to them no it makes me think of home buying a little bit where oh in the covid age where things around real estate you know once people you know kind of like i guess like covid had opened up a little bit again real estate picked up and people were obviously buying up a lot of properties and to get your property or I guess to secure your property and the chance of hopefully securing your property, it was like writing a custom note to the homeowner. Like, hello, I li- I've lived in this neighborhood for 30 years and oh, I watched your house for the last yeah. 28 and I saw it come available and I would love to be the next homeowner there. And so again, I think they obviously do want to hear that to some extent, but at the same time, it is just such a, maybe even it's more the lottery-based states where it's like, sorry, you know, who yeah. fill your application out and good luck. We don't know the humans behind it, but yeah, it is just a interesting variance from state to state. So yeah. I love that story. Yeah. I think it's really important. And back to where Sarah's marketing background, you know, or anyone, both our marketing backgrounds come into play at knowing who your audience is. And so mm. figuring out what's important to that, that state and so in the end of the day, any state that passes any medical or adult use laws for cannabis, what's our number one goal is to make the program successful, right? Which is to give, especially in a medical state, is to give pa- patients access to medicine. And so, you know, the, they're looking for a, pack, a button-up group to be like, hey, pick us. This is all the ingredients. I already have this business planned out. I know exactly who I'm going to hire. And I know exactly where I'm going to be. Here's the money that's going to fund it all the ingredients Sarah had mentioned, I'm basically prepared. Pick me because if you pick me, I can open like this. And so that is essentially, especially with a lot of the medical markets, what the state is looking for. And then the little nuances for each state is how we have to study them, each market, right? And what's important to them, what do they deem important to then plug those into the application as well. Are the applications all a like physical application or is there again a component a video. Here's my real estate. This is the neighborhood that we're serving. Like how personal does it get? And I guess it does range maybe state to state, but I'm just curious when you're submitting an application, what goes into it? Is it all text-based? It's been ended. Like, do you fill out an application that is 
given by the state or do you have the freedom, right? Or do they say only 300 words? You want to know what your community plan is? Only 300 words. Or could someone literally go and write a whole novel of what their community plan is? And how does that get, I guess, even then, I don't know if the right word is judged or awarded. Obviously, every state has a different program. Texas, from my understanding, has the compassionate use program, but like I don't personally know who makes up that program. So I'm curious who's actually like judging and awarding these licenses. I guess maybe in Texas, the Department of Public Safety, yeah. DPS, but they're not cannabis people. So what are they going off is where I'm trying to get at. It's like, okay, so you're filling all this information and then there are people maybe getting some cannabis, maybe not even publicly, I don't know, in some instances. And they're supposed to be the ones who are like, yes, uh uh-huh, this is the right person or the right license or the right application that I'm going to now award and welcome into my state. I just, obviously I'm not privy to like that side and just considering that y'all have dealt with it in different states with different clients. I'm just curious what these applications are asking. Is it very flexible? Is it a very structured application? And then when you're submitting the application, who's receiving it? And what's the timeline? Do they tell you, hey, you you applied for Texas, you're going to know in three weeks? Is it three months? It's, it is different in every state. So, you know, a lot, I would say majority of the states will have parameters, in whether it's character counts. Missouri was character counts, nightmare or work counts, you know, or page limitations. So page limitations is pretty common. Florida, for example, they wanted it double-spaced in a specific margin and it has to be in, in Texas, they wanted you to use either Arial or two different fonts, basically. And then some some states don't allow you to use graphics, some states do. So it's just really different in every market, I would say. And then who grades it depends on the state as well. Sometimes it is the state and the commissioners that they put, they put in place. But I have seen a trend now where the state will hire either a consulting firm like ours or qualified individuals to kind of grade specific sections. So security, cultivation, dispensing, you know, the subject matter experts will come in and grade them. And then they typically do have a matrix. So usually let's just say there's a maximum score of 1,300 goes to security. And then there's a manual and how the graders have to grade them. So I've seen that. And then timeline, uh, Texas did not give us a timeline for when they're going to issue the licenses. I have a theory on, on what they're doing as well, but we can save that. <laughs> But some most states will, most states will say, okay, you know, you have two months to put, to submit your application, but they give you at least a month in advance to, in regards to the application material. So you have, you know, at least three months to prepare. Sometimes you don't have that luxury of time. And then they'll say, okay, after that, the review process is probably going to take us three months or whatever the case may be. And then we'll issue all licenses by this date. Um, I would say most states will have some sort of a time. Good old Texas, keeping it nebulous for everybody. You know, and sometimes it's 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 sometimes no parameters is better than too many parameters, right? Because it allows you the flexibility to kind of be creative and really stand out. Yeah. Yes. I love the application processes where you can do headshots and logos and graphs and pictures of what your packaging could look like. I like ended up in the wrong industry. I'm like very dyslexic and I was like writing and drafting RFPs and it would take me, Max seems like a hundred million times better at it than I ever was. But for, for me, like that part, when a grader is looking at a hundred of these or 12 of these or nine of these or whatever it is, how freaking boring, how boring. I would literally be like, okay, like I wouldn't even be reading it anymore. So that was kind of always my like, 
strategy that I would add in, especially back in the day, because you couldn't do it, where it was like, okay, how do I make something super boring actually a little bit more interesting? And it was funny because I was like a young girl. I didn't really know too much about business besides like having an MBA, which means nothing, right? I had none in the real world experience. And then I was like, thinking of, again, it's like marketing. You're thinking of who you're marketing to. You're marketing to a grader that's going to have to go through a gazillion of these and they're going to be bored to death by the time they read two. And so it's, oh, okay, let's do this and let's do that. And ultimately, I don't want to say I cracked the code, but it started to work. And so I was like, okay, here's like the ingredients. And so my coin statement for that was always like, if available, add style and grace. If available, add style and grace. So we have our tricks and tools that we use, but one of my favorite things is being able to work in a market that we can like brand the client and do some of those like fun activities, I should say. We had a client that was, that said in the market we were successful in, we got a dispensary in life with the, the greeter, not the greeter, the me, the director of the department that was regulating that process, called him and said, you know, we all started laughing when we saw your open date was 420. <laughs> and we're like, should we just throw that in there just for fun? <laughs> And so that was like an example of, you know, one of the fun. They're like, we are actually reading it too. <laughs> yeah. Which was surprising, by the way. I'm like, oh my God, you couldn't pay me enough money to read like hundreds of these things. No, that's what I mean. I find that sometimes the applications are so lengthy and the requirements are so ridiculous in some capacities that it's like, one, filling out the application is half the battle, but obviously the other half is... Who's on the receiving end? And yes, I love that you're obviously thinking about it. Certainly that's why y'all are successful is because you have been doing this, you learned over the years and you're now applying what you've learned to help your clients succeed. But it is still obviously such a new industry, Texas being very weird and how they opened up licensing a couple of years ago and then they didn't really talk about it. And then all of a sudden they're like, we're opening licensing again, but nobody knows how many licenses. And we don't know when we're going to tell you anything about the program. And so just knowing what I know about my state, I'm like, who the fuck is, re- who's the person who's reading these licenses? I'm unbiased. Let me read it. I'm a local. I'll just be curious to see how that goes. And so obviously the station is a little bit of a window into that. So I thank you for that because that's really what I always hope to learn from these conversations is just information that because the industry is fairly new or it's so nuanced, it's not really discussed. It's not really talked about. And so it's so unknown. And so trying to give some clarity to the unknown is really helpful. Um, Maybe final question leading into a little bit of what happens next when your client, let's say, gets the license. I know that you kind of were addressing Sarah in the beginning. It's licensing, but it's a little bit more than licensing or it's so much more than licensing, depending on what your client's needs are. And so I can imagine you have a client, you get them a successful license and then six months a year time goes by and they re-engage with you because they want to go for another license but once they get that license do you like is it like okay great thank you so much we did the application you got awarded (laughs) it or like what what does that look like to hand off the hey you got it now we actually have to implement everything that was in the application do you also help them plug into other things that they might need to actually then go execute on the application that they said that they were going to do yeah so like the application versus operation game is so different. And so I think that everybody wants to club consultants like us into the application box because it's what they can understand from a framework perspective. For sure. The actual operations, it's sure you leverage some of the ingredients that you put together for your application. But when we're building an application project, we're building an application project in a 
not real world scenario for the graders. And then you get the license and I'm like, hey, call me. And then they call you and you're like, okay, so like some of these things like you're not going to do, right? Or like some of the locations you might not open there. And so then it becomes almost like drafting a college paper to then actually standing up a business. So when you ask, oh, do we consult in other businesses? If we've opened, I mean, dozens and dozens and dozens of cannabis facilities, we could open any other business with our eyes closed because the idiosyncrasies in cannabis are so great. And the amount of capital that you have to do it and then the learning curve is it's just there. Like a regular old business would just be, I'd open like a spa or something like that. It'd just be like way easier. So some clients want a retainer option where they're like, I'm their Zanax, right? So they're having like a mental freak out and they're like, I just have to call her. And like my job at that point is to calm them down to say a million other people have had this roadblock in the cannabis industry. It's not that big of a deal. Here's the 10 ways we can get through it. Pick one. It's your project, right? Another way is, you know, can you give us some intellectual property, like a grand opening camp chart, standard operating procedures, and some of the paperwork to support their business? We have that templated out automation. They can take it. They can craft it. They can make it their own. Or, or like the third thing, and I don't usually do this that much anymore, only on the projects that I actually have equity in, where it's like, we'll open their facility. And so like our Alabama project, that was a situation where they wanted us to be a part of it from an equity ownership standpoint. And so like for that group, since it's our license, we will open their facility. Now, does that mean that we're like meeting with contractors? No, it means we're giving them like the milestones and like the Dan chart and like basically all of the, all of the like things that we can do on a Zoom or through email without having to manage the actual like construction of the project. Yeah, the operations side of thing I think is going to get really interesting in the sense that especially with these free markets, 400 licenses are coming online. It's like, how are these people going to do it? So we have a sister company and it's had open a dispensary and that has all of our intellectual property on it where people could be like, oh, what's a go-to market strategy? What is an SOP? So I envision that piece of our business will start to evolve a bit more as we see trends of what people need in these open markets to purchase, to be able to do it on their own. That makes sense. Obviously, like you said, it's like the application is just one component. It's a big component, but once you then get awarded it, okay, now it's go time. How do we actually implement this? How do we uphold what we promised to this state? And maybe that's a quick little question. What's your understanding of what's the right way to phrase it? Like, how did these states who award these licenses actually monitor, regulate? Have they ever gone back and said, hey, you said in your yeah. application you would do this and you actually have it, so you're violating it? Yeah. My Ohio that I like am an owner of, they were so strict on it where it was like, you put in your app, produce it. And then some of the states are like, that was more of like a projected plan, right? Right. Like you said, a draft is like a step yeah. of like actually getting it. Yeah. Maxine might have more examples of that, but I remember being super shocked by how Ohio was handling things because they were like, you said you were doing this. Where is it? I'm like, geez, like they literally, because we'll do like walkthroughs for ATO or approval to operate with clients and they will have in those kind of states, they'll actually have your application printed and be like, where do I find this? Where is that? Mm -hmm. But I think that's more uncommon, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Usually like the regulators, but it's through inspection. So in New Jersey, for example, you'll get an assigned inspector and they'll go out there and look 
the tour the site if they wanted to. And they, you know, hey, you said you're constructing, we will start today. No dirt's on the ground or whatever. So they'll, they'll follow up with you. And then they typically are flexible. So if you are, especially in an open market like New Jersey, this is not in New Jersey, but I had a client that I know, like, for example, said that they were going to use this building and that upon inspection, there was like mold and all that, but you wouldn't know until, you know, you wouldn't spend that kind of money until after. And so at that point, right, like, of course, you know, you can relocate. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's it, typically they're not as strict as Ohio. I think Ohio is just one of the more strict markets, a stricter market, especially when it comes to making sure that like you're, you know, if you say that, you know, what you say your diversity plan better be what you're okay in regards to percentage of ownership, percentage of people you're going to hire, of, of minority women, veterans, whatever the case may be. No, it's obviously, it's a double-edged sword because you absolutely want there to be some accountability for everybody involved. It's like, hey, you said you were going to do this and now you're doing something completely different. That's really the merit of what you were awarded this license on. But then at the same time, you want the flexibility, like you said, with a building, perhaps not being a fit actual to implement the dispensary or the operation. Well, you want to have some flexibility and you want to have some change. And so that's just so interesting and fascinating to know. Again, I think these are the types of conversations that I really appreciate because it's just such an unknown. So I really appreciate you guys sharing so candidly. I'll ask final question. Um, you can both contribute your answers to this, but maybe it's the state, maybe it's certain licensing application or it's a certain operation. What is the most exciting thing coming down the pipeline? I know you mentioned that some states just close their, op- close their application processes. So I don't know if there's another state that's about to open. I know obviously Kentucky just, I guess they just legalized medical, but I don't know when they're going to actually open up their applications if they have or haven't yet. But so what's on the forefront that you're like, oh, this is really exciting. And this is what we're looking forwards to. We have a few applications in the pipeline. And so we're, we're, and then we know in the next two to four months, the next two to four months, they're going to be announced. So Illinois is going to hold their lottery process and we did participate there. Alabama is going to announce their winners. And so we'll, and we did participate in that market. What are the other two? Florida Florida and Texas. Texas. It will be awarding. And then we're waiting on some card applications in New York as well. Yeah. Yes. Well, we have ownership in most of those. And so that would mean that we would kickstart at the firm and be like responsible for funding, opening all the things, right? Um, and then on the, some of the other ones that we don't have ownership, one of the clients is like relatively new to the game. And so I would assume that we would help them in some capacity open. And then in our other markets, we have like our OGs that'll probably just execute and open relatively quickly. <laughs> All exciting things. No, thank you very much for joining on the podcast and sharing all that insight. And I'm excited for people to learn from you and hopefully connect with you if they're interested in a fit of taking this journey with you guys. So thanks for being with me again on the podcast. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. That wraps up another fantastic episode of the To Be Blunt podcast. And I hope you've enjoyed the enlightening discussions and insights we've shared today. But the conversation doesn't end here. I invite you to join my vibrant community of cannabis enthusiasts, experts, and advocates. So what can you do to stay connected and get involved? First, make sure you subscribe to To Be Blunt on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. 
And if you've enjoyed our show, I would truly appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate and review it. Your feedback helps the podcast grow and reach more listeners like you. Next, head over to our website, www.tobebluntpod.com, where you'll find a wealth of resources, exclusive content, and our show archives. While you're there, be sure to sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date on the latest cannabis news and events. Lastly, I would love to hear your thoughts, questions, and episode suggestions. Connect with me and the show on social media. Find us on Instagram at tobebluntpod and at theshadedtorabi. Let's keep the conversation going and work together to dispel myths, break stigmas, and celebrate the incredible world of cannabis. Thanks again for tuning in, and until next time, stay curious, stay informed, and stay blunt. Love this episode of To Be Blunt? Be sure to visit theshadatarabi.com slash tobeblunt for more ways to connect. New episodes come out on Mondays. And for more behind the scenes, follow along on Instagram at theshadatarabi.com.